morning. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. If you guys will stand, let's sing together. As you can see, um, our band is actually mostly on vacation, so uh, so that's you guys now. You guys get to be the band. Um, so if you like to clap, I encourage you to do that and make the person next to you do it as well. Um, but let's sing together. Here we go. Brave souls, there you go. Sing it out. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. The men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding is found far as far as the curse is found and he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders one of his love and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders wonders of his love Woo. Amen So come all you faithful. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and be.
angels singing exultation. Oh, sing, all ye citizens of heaven above. Glory to God. First and women echo. So come, let us adore him. So come, let us adore him. Everyone together. from adoration to confession. Why don't you bow your heads with me and we will pray to God. Father, you are worthy of all praise and you're worthy of all honor and all adoration. And Lord, we come as a people not only confessing your greatness, uh, but also confessing our sin. And that we don't deserve you, we don't deserve all the good that you do. If you'll spend a moment just silently confessing before the Lord. Father, we are the people that don't lie and say that we don't have sin, but we confess and we take hope that you freely justify and forgive and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. We thank you for your gospel 
We thank you not only that you're the great God that's worthy of all praise and all honors, the creator of this universe, but you're also the God that forgives and the God that entered space and time to win us back, to redeem us, to save us from our sins. You are Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you came to be with us and to bring us back to be with you. I pray that this Christmas season we would continue to dwell on that, to be rejoicing over that reality. And as we continue to worship you, we would continue to worship you as a people that have been set free, that have been forgiven. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. myself and for you as well. We talk about how hard it is to really focus on Christ in the Christmas season. And I think we talk about it so much because it is. Um, but as this, this song says, um, I just pray that we will be able to praise our God and to sing of love come down because that is what happened at Christmas and uh, that is the thing that can change our lives. So let's sing this out. Yeah. 
Christmas as a church is to know the end of the story and to know that on that night when Christ was born, that was just the beginning of the rescue that God had planned for us. So we look forward to the glorious day when he will return and come for his church. Let's sing this out together. Ascended, my Lord, evermore. 
heavy, he loved me, dying, he saved me, buried, he carried my sins far away, and rising, he justified, freely forever, one day he's coming, no glorious day. us to tell your story this Christmas. God, help us to live lives that honor you. God, help us to seek your glory above all else. Lord, I pray that as we we listen now to your word, God, that you'll just take hold of us, help us to seek you out daily and to understand more of who you are. To your name I pray. Amen. If y'all will open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in Matthew 1, um, but if you have a bulletin, you can see we are actually going to be preaching through uh, all 28 chapters of Matthew today, um, my second Christmas sermon through the entire book of Matthew. I was just trying to explain it to my wife last night, and actually if we could get some of the house lights, then uh, people can see their Bibles a little better too. 
Um, I was trying to explain to my wife last night that when you spend a year in a book, as I've spent with Matthew now, we just finished preaching through a year, and, and Matthew went through all the chapters of Matthew together. Um, it's just hard to let go. You know, I've really fallen in love with the book. I can't just leave it that easily. And so I decided as I was planning out Christmas, we'll just look at some overviews of Matthew when we're looking at Christmas. And so last week, we looked at the birth of Jesus and the life that he lived for us. This week, we're going to look at the death of Jesus. We're calling the sermon Born to Die. And knowing that his death, of course, is very important too. That's what we hear a lot about when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for us, taking our place, dying the death that we should have lived or that we should have died. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the resurrection. So we're kind of trying to split that up, but we're also looking at how those really are talked about all through the book of Matthew. So we're going to kind of skip through some different verses, some different chapters today as we look at this theme of his death and how he knew that he was born for this. He knew that this was coming. And I wanted to just quote, you don't have to turn here, but a couple of things I wanted to quote to just help us to understand that, that this was part of the plan all along. We looked at this one verse last week in, in uh, Matthew five seventeen that where Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus knew he was the fulfillment of everything that had been written in the Old Testament. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't Old Testament, oh, things didn't go well, okay, now Jesus, plan B. It was Jesus was this fulfillment of everything that God had been planning and working and building on in the Old Testament. And then in Luke 24, you have this really weird little story, and you can read this later as you're just kind of doing your own devotionals and preparing for Christmas. But in Luke 24, you have this interesting story where Jesus, after he had resurrected, after he had risen from the dead, appeared to a couple of disciples. They didn't recognize him, and he was talking to them on the road to Emmaus, and he was explaining to them how he was the whole point of the Old Testament. That the whole Old Testament had been written about him. In 24-25, he said, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? You see, everybody understood that there was this glorious king that was supposed to come, but they thought it was just glory. They didn't understand the suffering, the death that would come before the glory that we just, saw, we just sang about in that song, Glorious Day, this progression. He was born first, and then he died and suffered for us. And then we're still looking forward to this return that's going to come. In 2427, this is a good one, just again, to look, look up later, just jot down this, uh, this place to look it up in Luke 2427. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Saying all the scriptures are talking about him. And Jesus just took them through and explained it all to him. Wouldn't that have been really cool to be walking on the road and get this Bible study from Jesus where he says, oh yeah, the whole Bible is about me and here and here and here. And he just kind of opened it up for them. Well, we'll read out of Matthew 1, 18 through uh, 23 and kind of reorient ourselves one more time with this Christmas story and then look at how Jesus was not just born to live this life that we looked at last week, but he was also born to, to die for us. Matthew 1, 18 through 23 This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, he was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So this was a a miraculous conception, a miraculous pregnancy. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, I just want to make sure you understand this because we as modern people can think, oh yeah, this was an everyday occurrence for Bible characters. Angels just appeared out of nowhere all the time, right? And we can kind of have our Bible thinking cap on when we're reading this. No, it was weird for angels to appear to people back then just like it would be today. So, so understand that. that, that was, this was crazy. This was unheard of. This was 
something miraculous and amazing, just like it would be for us today. This angel appeared to Joseph, probably scared him to death. After he got himself together, it said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid, because he was afraid, because this is scary to have an angel appear to you. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. And we talked about that last week, the name Jesus meaning Yahweh saves. Verse 22 reconfirms again that this is all a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, our only hope. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would open up the word to us, um, that we would understand, like the disciples walking to Emmaus, um, how you are the point of all of this. We thank you. We thank you that your son Jesus was born a humble birth and lived this life to take our place, to live as the, the true man, as the true Israel, as the true worshiper and, and show us what it, what it meant to walk with you, but also to take our place, to be a substitute for us. And Lord, we'll see that even more strongly as we contemplate your death, that you died to take our place. You lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, but you also died the death that we deserved to die. And I pray that you would just give us open eyes to hear and to listen, soft hearts, not to be defensive, but to accept your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about new birth at Christmas time, I was, I was thinking about a friend who, who has been a, a dog owner and, and has this really uh, kind of love-hate relationship with, with having dogs because... What happens is she loves the dog, and she loves the dog more and more and more, and then the dog gets old and dogs die, right? Any of you, sorry children, that happens sometimes, but, but dogs sometimes get old and die. And this friend was saying, this got a 13-year-old dog, I, just, I, don't, I don't think I can do it again. I don't think I can get another puppy, because I'm going to get attached, and someday the dog's going to die. Um, and, and so she's kind of thinking negatively, looking at this dark cloud of death that's hanging over the joy of this new birth, this little puppy. Well, well, me and my family, my children, my wife and I, we, we got puppies just a couple days ago. And, uh, you know, me kind of being a melancholy person myself was thinking about this conversation with this friend. You know, I'm thinking about this, oh, no, you know, 15 years from now, they may die, you know, and just kind of processing that. And, and, and I think sometimes we can have this human perspective where we allow the gloom or the darkness or the what could come or the what could happen to overshadow the joy, right? And, and that's not what's happening here. When I say Jesus was born to die, we need to make sure we're not seeing it from the human perspective. It's not to say there's this dark cloud hanging over the birth of Jesus. And as we celebrate Christmas, we shouldn't be too happy because he's going to die. That, that's not it at all. Actually... In, in a strange way, that brings us more joy because his death was not just a death like every death we know, not like the deaths that seem meaningless when our friends or family or when we get sick or when someone gets hurt and dies or, or when something just breaks because of this is a broken world. It, it's not like that kind of brokenness that we live with and we fight against. This is a death that conquered death for good so that when we do die, we, we can have hope. And know that we're going to be with Jesus forever and look forward to that glorious day when, when all things will be made right, when everything's going to be okay. We still live in this time of suffering. 
But, but there's going to be this day when everything is made perfect. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more crying, no more tears. And Jesus is conquering death for good. So, so when I talk about Jesus being born to die, don't think of it in this melancholy way. Don't think of it as this, this dark cloud hanging over Jesus' birth. It's actually part of God's plan, as we said, from the Old Testament, part of what God built out into this story and into this plan to save us. It's part of our hope. It's part of what makes Christmas worth celebrating. His birth, his life lived for us, his death, the death died for us, his resurrection, the resurrection for us, to promise us this new hope. And that's how we should look at the Christmas story, all aspects of it, every piece of it, every stop along the way with with hope and joy and excitement. Well, the first thing I want us to look at is in chapter 16 of Matthew. This is the first place where we see Jesus in Matthew predicting his death. So what we're going to do is as we go through, we're going to skip through a few different chapters in Matthew, and we're going to look at how Jesus said, way before it happened, I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. That's part of the plan. That's the direction I'm heading. He knew that. That's, that's where he was going for us, again, because he loved us. Matthew 16, we're going to read verses 15 through 24. And we're calling this first section, His Death Makes Men Stumble. The first thing we want to look at is how Jesus' death is actually a stumbling block for people. Matthew 16, I guess I should turn there as well. All right. Matthew 16, again, 15 through 20, we'll go 15 through 26. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? He's asking his disciples. Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the good answer, right? Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. To get it, to get who Jesus is, that's a miraculous thing. That's, that's a result of God's grace. He's saying that's not a man thing, that's a God thing. God's revealed that to you. Verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, again, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he's saying there's great authority in this, Peter, in you as the rock and in this confession that you made that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's good. Good answer. That is right. And, And the church's authority will rest on that reality of who Jesus is, his real identity as the Christ, the promised one. Christ means the anointed one, the one that's been chosen and set aside to be that hope, that fulfillment of everything that's been promised in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, yes, this is it. This is going to be your hope and your future. The church is going to conquer with this truth. And then verse 20, odd little statement. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Like This is the most important truth in the world, but don't tell anybody, okay? Keep this quiet. Got to stay on the down low. And part of the reason was it wasn't time yet. As we'll see in the way Matthew ends with the Great Commission, he says, go tell everybody and and gather people to be followers of of Jesus. But it wasn't time yet at this point in the story. He's saying, don't tell people yet because people are still confused about who I am. People still want me to just be the glorious king and they don't get that I've got to suffer. He's going to go into those further, further explanations here. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I don't know why. I I keep making noise with my mic, don't I? Are you all hearing that? 
Is that me or is that something else? I keep hearing, I don't know, I keep hearing this stuff. Okay, sorry. I won't let it distract me anymore. Back to the text. Don't notice it. Don't think about it. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be killed and, and raised to life. And Peter takes him aside and says, never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Saying, don't, don't have the things of man in mind. Don't view things from this human perspective. But see, see me, see Jesus. He's saying, see that I am the one that you're looking for. Don't view it just with this man-centered view. You're, you're, you're tripping things up. So just a couple of verses back, Peter's the hero, right? Jesus says, you're the rock. And that is the right answer, A plus. Peter, I'm going to build my whole church on that confession that Jesus Christ is, is the Christ and he is the son of the living God. And then a few verses later, he says, get behind me, Satan. You're stumbling block. You're, you're tripping up because you don't want me to die. You don't want me to suffer. You don't want me to go through that. But Jesus says, I have to do that. I've got to move through that. That's part of God's plan. It's been part of God's plan all along. That's what I was born to do, born to die for you. I found a picture here of a, uh, a tripwire. I just, you know, Google tripwire. I found a little wire there. Someone's feet are right up against it. When, when I was a kid, we had this fort out in the woods and I shared the story with you all a few months ago, I think. But we had this fort out in the woods. And to protect our fort, we had set up tripwires around the fort. You know, in case someone wanted to raid it and steal our, I don't know, comic books, baseball cards, whatever it was we kept in the fort. You know, it could happen, right? So this remote, uh, you know, forested area in this neighborhood that nobody could get to, they might break in and try to steal things out of a fort. So we set up tripwires around it. Problem was, we didn't really catch any bad guys with our tripwires because no bad guys were coming to steal things from our fort. And that was really frustrating if you spent a lot of time investing in building tripwires and setting up traps for people. So we decided to take matters into our own hands and we started inviting friends to come visit the fort with us. We're like, hey, come out and see our fort. Let's run through this path. And we would just kind of step over the tripwire and then our friends would hit it and, and just you know, face plant. There's no junior high boys in here, are there? Okay, good, I don't want to lead anybody to sin. Sorry boys, don't do this. Um, bad idea, before I knew Jesus, okay? Um, but, so, so I have this image of this tripwire, and, and his death is a tripwire. His death is, literally in the Greek, he says, you're a stumbling block to me. He's talking to Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. Elsewhere, Jesus says that my death is a stumbling block to others. It's, it's something that we don't like. Here, Peter is having a hard time with him suffering and trying to trip up Jesus, saying, no, I don't want you to suffer. In other places, Jesus says that other people trip over me and, and I end up being something that crushes them because they're not willing to follow me and follow my death and, and who I am as, as the Messiah. It, it can be something we get tripped up on because we don't want him to suffer, right? Or we don't want someone to suffer for us. We think we can do it on our own. And I want to ask us as a church, are we going to be the kind of church that conquers through the understanding of who Christ is? Like it said just a few verses back, he says... On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Will we be a kind of church that believes that and trusts in his death and trusts in Jesus' identity 
and we conquer, we conquer hell, we, we beat back the brokenness of this world? Or will we be the kind of church like Peter just a few verses later where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. You've got the things of men in mind. I mean, what kind of church will we be? At Christmas time especially, I think we need to think about this. Who are we going to be? Are we going to celebrate Christmas rejoicing in who Jesus is and his identity and, and what he's done for us? Or are we going to get all distracted in the things of men? The, the uh, idea of being a non-traditional type church or being a non-denominational church doesn't mean that we're against traditions. It doesn't mean that we're against other denominations. It doesn't mean that we're against traditions that people practice. What it means is that we want to submit all those things to Jesus. It means we want to bow down all of our traditions, anything that we might do underneath Jesus, so that Jesus is the one that gets lifted up. And I think a real reality where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us at Christmas time is, is we've got this list of like 50 things that we feel like we have to do to have a successful Christmas, right? We kind of put this pressure on ourselves as Americans that we've got we to gotta go farther, we've got to do more, and I've got to beat my, la- my neighbors with the lights this year, and you know, all this, you know, this competition kicks in, and what we're going to have to do to lift up Jesus at Christmas time is, is we may have to discard some traditions. Again, not because we're anti-tradition. Being non-traditional just means you're willing to submit the traditions to Jesus. Traditions are great. They, they are great tools for you to practice as a family, to pass on to children, to, to worship Jesus. But, but when you read the Old Testament, you see God telling his people how to practice traditions, how to practice their festivals, how to practice their holy times of year. It's all about teaching the kids about God and who he is and how he saved them, how he took care of them. And if you're not practicing the festivals that way, if you're not practicing the traditions, if you're not practicing the parties in a way that leads people to worship Jesus, then we failed. And so that would be my encouragement to us at Christmas time. Be willing to, to cut stuff out. There's, there's stuff that we practice now as traditions that were a burden to me when, when I first got married. You know, I was a slacker. I didn't know any better. I'd been a single guy. And I didn't like all these traditions. Well, I've come to love some of these traditions. But there's other traditions that we've purposefully just cut out. We said, we're just not going to do that. It's just not going to work for our family. It's not going to help our family worship Jesus to practice this tradition anymore. And we've cut it out. And we all have to make those kind of hard decisions. With the scriptures, in prayer, submitting to the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord to lead you so that Christmas time, when we have all these great traditions, again, we're not against those traditions, that we would submit them to Jesus so that he would be lifted up in whatever tradition you practice, whatever rituals you may go through. The next thing I want to look at is that his death demands faith from us. You just skip over to the next chapter. In verses 17 through 23, verses 17 through 23, we'll see that his death demands faith from us. In this story, his disciples were trying to heal a boy and they failed and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus then has... Very strong words for him. In verse 17 he says, O unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? So Jesus says, Well, you're unbelieving. You don't have faith. You don't trust in God. Verse 20. Why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 20, he replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. 
They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So again, Jesus explains once more, I'm going to die. I'll I'll be raised to life, but they're filled with grief because they don't get it. They don't understand what's going to happen. They don't understand the pain that he's going to go through for them. And he says, all you need is just a little bit of faith. The word he uses is, uh, in the NIV translation, it says, oh, you of little faith. And it's this Greek word that really means something along the lines of like puny, sickly faith. Um, so it's not like you have one gram of faith and you really need five grams. Or, you know, you have a pound of faith, but you need ten pounds of faith. It's not, it's not a comparison of how much faith you need. A, a lot of teachers spend all this time focusing on your faith and building your faith and making faith out as if it's this special magical thing apart from us or something. Faith is only as strong as the object that you have faith in. Faith is all about the thing that it's pointed towards. And so I've got here a picture of a mustard seed. It's one of the tiniest seeds there, there are. And Jesus says, you just need the tiniest amount. It's, it's not about having big faith. It's about having puny, worthless faith or real faith. Do, do you have faith or not? Do you have faith at all? Just a tiny bit. You just need a little tiny bit, just like a mustard seed. If you just had that much faith, you could tell the mountain to go throw itself in the sea and it would do that. Think, trust in me. His death demands faith. It demands us to trust in Him and what He's doing for us. Again, a lot of teachers today will try to make it about you. They'll try to make it about you and your faith. Is your faith stronger? Is it healthy enough? Well, if you didn't get that Cadillac you prayed for, you must not have had a strong enough faith. Instead of making it about Jesus, right? Instead of saying, Jesus is the object of our faith. Trust Him. Whether you get what you prayed for or not, trust Him. Say, Jesus, you are my King. You're the one I'm going to trust in. There's this great story in James where it talks about uh, the faith of Elijah. And it's really interesting. It's in, in James, and what he's doing is he's saying that, uh, he's talking about prayer there in James. And he says that, that Elijah was an ordinary man just like us. Anybody here ever read any of the stories in the Old Testament about Elijah? Would you consider him an ordinary man? No. No, it, for those of you that are, that are new to the Bible or new to church, um, you can look up the Elijah stories in First and Second Kings. And there was an Elijah, and then he had like a junior partner named Elisha. So it gets a little confusing. But Elijah, he was like this big stud. And Elisha did some pretty amazing things too. But Elijah, with a J, Elijah was probably the most amazing character in the Bible next to Jesus. I mean, it's all kinds of amazing miracles and just did these fantastical things. And it's just these crazy stories. So if you're looking for good reading over the Christmas holidays, I would read those Elijah stories, amazing stories. But James says he was just a regular guy. He was a man just like us. He just prayed. That's the difference between Elijah and me is he prayed. He asked God. And and I think that's the same idea that Jesus is talking about here with the mustard seed faith. It's not a matter of you being different than the other person or you being better or stronger or faster. It's... It's who you're trusting. Are you calling on God? Are you praying? And as we head into the new year, this is a great time for New Year's resolutions, right? Going into 2010, I would challenge us to be a body that actually prays. And for different people, that looks like different things. You know, you may need to set appointments with Jesus every day, every morning, every night. You may need to put cards in your car, on your mirror that remind you to pray. I don't know what you can do to help you to remember to take that step. But don't get lost in the execution of it. The idea is to pray. 
Make 2010 a year when you actually ask God for help. Instead of trying to do things in your own flesh and in your own strength, when you run into a brick wall, say, God, what would you have me to do here? What does your word have to say about this? What should I do? Lord, will you help me open this door? Lord, will you give me peace to trust you if the door doesn't get open? Begin talking to God. <coughs> Begin asking him. Because if James says, Elijah, we call him a superhero of the Bible. James says, he was just an ordinary dude. Just a regular guy. He just prayed. That's the only difference between us and Elijah. He trusted God. The last thing that we see when we look at the death of Jesus is that it's a gift. His death is a gift. And uh, we pick this up basically in uh, chapter 20. If you want to skip over to chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20. Jesus gives this great parable at the end of, of chapter 19. And it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Or as some people, we've talked about Jerry Bridges is a great Christian author. Um, he's got this book, Transforming Grace. He talks about it as the parable of the generous uh, landowner. Focuses on the generosity of the one that's paying the workers. And basically this parable just sets out that, that God can reward people however he wants to. Because no one deserves to get rewarded at all. So every reward he gives is grace, is a gift. It's more than we deserve. And just a few verses earlier in 19 also, just again to set the context here of what Jesus is talking about. He had told his disciples, you're going to be rewarded a hundredfold for anything you've done for me. So he's saying, you're not going to get rewarded in a fair way. You're going to get rewarded in a more than fair way. What we call grace. What we call gift. It's this idea that God gives us more than we deserve. Not less, but more. So he says, I'm going to reward you in this gift sort of way. So pick up with me. In 2012, we get kind of the tail end of this parable. Chapter 20, verse 12. These... Men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So you've got these different workers, but they're all rewarded the same. Some workers worked all day, they're paid a day's wage. Some workers worked an hour, they're paid a day's wage. Above and beyond what they deserve. Verse 13. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So again here, Jesus is giving them this teaching once more, saying, it's about grace, it's about gift, it's about being rewarded more than you ever deserve, being rewarded a hundredfold for anything you gave up to me, being like this, this worker that works just the last hour of the day but still gets paid a day's wage. Jesus is saying, this is how God works with people. He's gracious. He's a gift giver. He gives what we don't deserve. And then in that context, he says, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised to life. And this is part of God's gift giving to the world. At Christmas time, we like to celebrate giving gifts, right? We exchange gifts because we acknowledge in doing that that God is the greatest gift giver there ever was. That, that he is this father of generosity that loves to give us good things. And we like to give to each other to reflect that, to reflect that God is generous, to reflect that he's a gift giver. I had a little picture I found here and we looked at this a few weeks back when we were in chapter 20. We looked at this and I know... Kids and those of you basically any younger than me don't know what this is. Uh, this is a time clock. 
And in the old days, before computers and fancy things like that, you would have this card and you would take it and it would punch the time that you came to work. And then when you were done working, you'd take your card with your name on it and they would punch it again to say, okay, you finished working at this time, you started working at this time. And that way you would get paid according to what you deserved. Of course, I guess the clock didn't really know how lazy you were or you know, how well you worked at that time. But it, it, it at least knew when you came in and when you left. So it was getting closer to being fair, I guess. And, and so this time clock, this time punch system would make sure that you got paid according to what you deserve. And oftentimes, like these workers that were complaining to the generous landowner, they were saying, well, that's not fair that other people got paid more. Because we worked all day and we just got paid for a day. And, and what the Bible tells us is there's two ways to approach God. You can approach God according to the wage system. You can approach God with the, I want to get paid what I deserve kind of attitude. Or you can approach God with the, I don't deserve anything. Will you be merciful to me? Will you be generous anyway? I've heard, God, that you're generous. I've heard that you're a gracious God. Will you be gracious to me? Because I know I don't deserve anything. There's two ways to approach God. Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. How are we approaching God? Do you approach Him like a time clock going, hey, I did this and I deserve to get paid for it? Or do you approach Him saying, yeah, I don't... I don't even want to look at the time clock. I know I don't deserve it. I deserve to get fired. But God, will you be generous to me anyway? Will you forgive me? Will you give me the gift of your son Jesus who lived the perfect life in my place like we saw last week and died the death that I deserve to die so that his substitution takes care of me, that you see me through him. You see me as your perfect son because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did for me. Two ways to approach him. I want to just conclude and wrap up this section looking at Matthew 26. If you want to skip over to Matthew 26, just have, have two verses there. And it's the last time that Jesus predicts his death. The shortest, because it's right before it actually happens. We're, we're rolling into the time in the story now when, when it actually happens, when he, he actually dies. And Jesus puts it in context, once again, of the Old Testament. And says, my death just fits perfectly with everything that's happened already in the Old Testament. If you'll remember in the Old Testament, God... Uh, set the people of Israel free from slavery in Egypt. In this book called Exodus, he hears their cries, they're being oppressed, they're being abused, genocide is taking place. He takes them through all these miracles, he sets them free to make them a nation for himself. And so Jesus adopts, or God adopts these people as his own, and he gives them the law, and he says, okay, I'm going to make you a special nation, I'm going to give you the law, and I'm going to give you all these all these ceremonies and there are going to be all these sacrificial systems that we're going to set up. You see this in Exodus and in Leviticus where, where all these animals are sacrificed to take the place of the people. And so sacrifices of animals are, are done as a constant illustration to be always teaching the people not to do anything magical but to teach the people and help the people understand their need for a sacrifice. So sacrifices are constantly taking place. Animals are being sacrificed to take the place, to take the guilt to take the shame of the people who know that they're sinners and know that they need a sacrifice to take their place because they're sinners. And so Jesus speaks into that context in 26, 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. The first and most important sacrifice in the Old Testament is the Passover. As God is forming his nation, as he's adopting them, pulling them out of Egypt, setting them free, 
before he gives them all those million other weird sacrifices that we read about in Leviticus, page after page, and it can be hard to read through that section of Scripture, when it's still in this narrative of God rescuing his people in Exodus, he says, I want you to sacrifice one spotless lamb. I'm going to wipe out all the firstborn of Egypt, and I'm going to wipe out all the firstborn of your people too. But if you trust me, and if you sacrifice this lamb in their place, then you'll be set free. It will take your place, and it will give you salvation. This, the spotless lamb will be sacrificed for you. Jesus says, it's Passover time. They celebrated this then every year. It became their celebration, their major holiday, like how we celebrate Easter and celebrate Christmas. Every year they would remember this. Every year they would sacrifice the lamb to take their place and help them remember that God had adopted them by sacrificing this lamb. Jesus says, it's Passover time. It's time for me to die. He's telling us he is the lamb. He's the one that's come. He's the ultimate sacrifice, once and for all, to bring us to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made, giving us your son, Jesus. We thank you for the birth that we celebrate at Christmas time. And we thank you that the death that Jesus was going to die is not a dark shadow that hangs over Christmas for us, but it's something that fills it out and gives it meaning, helps us to understand how it fits in context with everything that you'd planned, all the sacrifices that your people had made. But this is the once and for all sacrifice to permanently save your people from their sin. Thank you that you were born as a baby. Thank you for the salvation that you bring us. I pray that we could be a people that are willing to follow in your suffering and to bring that message of peace and joy to those around us. And we look forward and hope to that glorious day someday when all things will be made right. Help us to magnify you as we sing, magnify you as we celebrate Christmas traditions, to lift you up in everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, we'll stand as we sing this last song. Uh, this is a new Christmas song we, we taught y'all a few weeks ago, so uh, just sing it out with us.
to us the sun is given Let every heart prepare his throne And every nation under heaven Come and worship Do not be afraid No, no, my soul, my soul Magnifies the Lord, my soul Magnifies the Lord. He has done great things for me, great things for me. My soul, my soul, magnifies the Lord. My soul, magnifies the Lord. He has done great things for me, great things for me. Of His government. There will be no end He'll establish it With His righteousness And He shall reign On David's throne His name shall be From this day on Wonderful Counselor
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you've done. I pray that you would help us to magnify you in this season and everything that we do, that you'd be lifted up. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.